and welcome back to another episode. This is like my fourth time trying to record the solo portion because it is Monday morning and I can barely function. So I'm really sorry if half of this doesn't make sense. Um, I originally was going to do a big or a longer solo portion, but due to both what I literally just said and also kind of needing more time to reflect on things that have happened in the past two weeks, I'm going to save that. Um, Also, this episode is long to begin with, so I don't really see the need to add too much extra fluff, Um, especially because the fluff would be kind of emotional fluff, and I don't don't think that's what you guys want right now. So instead, I'm going to talk about one of my sponsors, which is Saqqara. As I mentioned last week, I recently ordered their meal program again, aside from just their probiotics and metabolism super powder, which I use like on the reg. And as I predicted, it was just as good as even even better than I thought. And I'm really happy I ordered it because, um, it makes my life easier and it, every meal I eat has like the macronutrients, micronutrients, um, whole wholesome ingredients that, you know, you hear influencers talk about and it's been like, then you don't really know what they mean. And, but they're delicious. And, um, yeah, and I don't have to cook. So it's a dream come true for someone like me who's really lazy and doesn't want to cook, but also really wants to have full meals that give me all the energy I need and nutrients I need to power through the day and stay healthy and refrain from that eating disorder mentality um, and restriction mentality. So yeah, I'm loving it. And what's so awesome is you guys can also order from Saqqara and get 20% off your first order and by doing so help solace in the city um so yeah that's a you know two kill birds with one stone a win-win situation all the cliches um so just to do that you can go to Saqqara.com that's s-a-k-a-r-a.com and then use the code xozoe at checkout xozoe and you'll get 20% off your first order so again that's Saqqara.com and then use the code XOZOE at checkout. Um, yeah, if you do so, I am sure you'll love it. Um, and yeah, now I'm so excited to share my episode with Jarrett with you guys. Um, it's awesome. It's about shrooms again, but I seriously am so amped to be learning more about psychedelics and a natural substance that is like pretty much the closest thing the modern world has to curing mental illness so take a listen it's awesome jared's awesome you are awesome um yeah enjoy hello everyone and welcome to another episode of solace in the city today i am so excited to finally be here virtually with Jarrett Rose, who is an international student and PhD candidate in sociology at York University in Toronto. Uh, yeah, in in Toronto. Yeah, I'm awesome. not there. I'm not there currently. <laughs> Thank you for having me, though. I, I'm I'm back home in uh, 
in Long Beach, California right now, which is the southernmost city of Los Angeles. And, and so that's where you're, you're finding me. And I've been here for three plus months now because I had to get out of a big city, um, you know, due to the cold and the lockdown. And so I've been home with family and, and surfing again and, and having all sorts of uh, fun while I work a lot as well. <laughs> I'm sure your, your friends in Toronto are probably pretty jealous. <laughs> Uh, they are. That's yeah, they are. And I, I try not to rub it in. It is um, a big bummer. You know, uh, you don't want to hear someone rub that kind of thing in. But the weather has been better for them over the last week. And I have a my, my partner is there right now as well um, in um, in London, Ontario. And so, yeah, the weather has been pretty nice. And so I'm glad that they're finally able to uh, enjoy, you know, out, the outdoors, essentially. Yeah, I feel the same way. People in New York are like, it's finally 60 degrees. I'm like, it's been like that here, but I'm not going to rub it in. <laughs> yeah, has the, the weather's been nice there recently. Has it not? I, I... In, in New York? I mean, I'm in Texas still, but um, I've heard that it's finally spring. So I'm happy for them. <laughs> nice, nice. But anyway, so if you don't mind, like, let's start off with you telling me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I mean, we kind of alluded to it. How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Yeah, thanks. Um, I am 34 years old now. I, I was born in Long Beach, uh, like I said, here in, in Los Angeles County. And I, I grew up in a, a, a city called West Garden Grove. Um, and, you know, went to school there. Uh, I did my bachelor's degree at uh, Cal State Long Beach here, California State University Long Beach here, which is I, I'm, I'm down the street from right now. And um, you studied sociology, um, played ice hockey, w which was unique. Yeah, for California. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I, I grew up, you know, surfing, skateboarding. I, I played in a punk band for seven years. Um, I was kicked out of high school in uh, 11th grade for grade issues. I was kind of, you know, um, I was kind of lost and was kind of, uh, you know, drinking and, and, and smoking weed uh, and just kind of, you know, meandering about. Uh, my, my parents had me at 20 years old and I, I was not planned for. And, and I kind of, uh, I was hyperactive from the very get-go. It was very troublesome for me to sort of move through elementary school. I was, I was getting in trouble a lot and I, I really had a tough time sitting still. You know, this was largely before the social media environment took over everyone's consciousness and, um, and, and kind of, uh, you know, propelled them toward this new, more uh, social hyperactivity now that we're all experiencing uh, broadly in our culture. But yeah, it was, so it was difficult for me and, and my parents did the best they could. They had their own issues at times. And so things were, were kind of wild. Um, growing up and, and uh, I wasn't always uh, a great student. I wasn't able to be a great student. I was, I was rambunctious. I was all over the place. I was a troublemaker. Um, I ran with a, an interesting crowd at times. And, and so high school came about and I, um, yeah, you know, started listening to a lot of punk rock music, a lot of rock and roll. Partying was important to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I got my, shit together over time and, and um, you know, uh, went to Cal State Long Beach for my bachelor's degree and, and studied sociology. And 
I just loved, I loved learning about people. I loved learning about society, culture. I, I just, I saw all these people, you know, the, the, the punk rock mentality kind of, uh, you know, compelled me to not want to have a, a nine to five job. And I really didn't want to go and work for the man and have that sort of typical experience. And, and I saw in these professors, like they were enlightened, they, they were knowledgeable and they had these really interesting social lives and, and did things that were creative and that they enjoyed. And I just felt like it was an awesome path to, you know, travel down. And so I, I graduated and um, I moved down to San Diego for three years. I, I, did my, I did my master's degree in sociology at San Diego State, which I just loved. It was such a remarkable experience for me moving down to San Diego and the people that I met and, and some of the professors that I became just great friends with and, and they were mentors. Like it really was such a significant um, sort of era in my life. And, um, you know, and I, and I, I graduated and I, I, I studied globalization and, and social theory. And I wrote my master's thesis on the ways in which uh, United States imperialism kind of facilitated the rise of Islamic State. And um, I actually, I lost a buddy in, in 2015, like literally the day that I graduated. I haven't thought about this in a while, but a friend of mine was teaching at, um, you know, Top Gun at, um, at Miramar Air Base. He was a, a fighter pilot. And, and it was during that, that, you know, that war in the Middle East when my buddy, uh, who was an instructor, he didn't have to go back overseas. His name is Taj Serene. And he was just such a remarkable person. And, and he decided to go back over to uh, the Middle East. And, and um, he had an, a malfunction and his aircraft went down and he steered that aircraft away from an English suburban neighborhood and uh, subsequently ejected late. Anyway, I just am recalling this. I apologize for the tangent. I, I, I haven't thought about that in a while. And he literally, this plane went down the day that I graduated with my MA. But so anyway, um, yeah, I did my MA and then I uh, accepted an international student position in uh, Toronto, Canada. And I, I sold most of my stuff and I I moved to Canada in 2016. I'd never even stepped foot in the country before. I just kind of went over there and started a new life. And um, yeah, you know, it was uh, it was unique. So anyway, <laughs> thank you for listening to all that. I didn't uh, I couldn't have imagined that it would have taken that turn. But yeah, that's kind of a, a little background to me. And I've, I've lived in Toronto, which is a lovely city. And I have so many great friends there. Um, and, and I've lived there for about four years now. Oh, no, oh, yeah, about four and a half years. Wow. So I have a, I have a number of questions. First question, just, just out of curiosity, did you move to Toronto before November of 2016? Yeah, that's a hilarious question. I, <laughs> part of the reason that I decided on Toronto was because I was really shocked at, I mean, I wasn't shocked because I had been paying attention, but the rise of, uh, of, of Donald Trump and in the, the sort of cultural phenomena taking place, uh, you know, correlated with that situation was really disturbing. And, and again, I had been paying attention. I was a sociologist. I, 
I realized that there were um, people dissatisfied with the status quo, particularly uh, in in the middle uh, parts of the country. And and yeah, it was it was really it was kind of uh, one of the reasons that I decided to move to Canada and to accept this uh, PhD position uh, at York University in Toronto because I was so concerned and I really just I was I felt like going abroad and, and seeing how people live in, in Canada and seeing what they were what they had going on and I'm, it, it's been such a wild ride yeah. I, I I was I was a gym member at this Jewish community center I'm not Jewish um, but I loved this this gym and they had a steam room and I'm I because of my hyperactivity I have to work out every morning otherwise I will implode but just the, the day that we realized that Trump had been elected was just um, the whole city was quiet. Yeah. The gym, the gym was quiet. The city was quiet. It was so shocking. I'll never forget that day. I, I went to bed the night before laughing with my roommates having dinner thinking, well, Hillary Clinton is going to be our next president. And yeah, so do we all. Yeah. And, and I thought she's kind of, you know, she's amazing in some ways and she kind of sucks in others. And uh, <laughs> because I was a critical leftist and, but I went to bed laughing. And when I woke up, my alarm went off and I grabbed my iPad and I had like nine text <laughs> messages and like seven Facebook messages. And I just thought, Oh my uh -oh. God, what, yeah, yeah. what have we gotten into? So anyway, it's funny though. I really like what you said. Like I wasn't, surprised because I was paying attention and I think that's just like so important I was actually also living abroad I was studying abroad in Spain and safe to say I was asleep like I, I mean because it was you know seven hours later six hours later and um I I wasn't watching at all I made the very privileged assumption that you know oh just you know all my New York friends think Hillary's gonna win so clearly um but yep same kind of a deal I woke up to a bunch of texts mostly from my family members saying oh my god <laughs> and of course you know being in being the American at like uh actually funny enough I was there was a ton of people in the Cal, uh, like UC programs at my abroad program. Um, and of course, you know, we had a critical eye on us that first day back because all these Spanish people were like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you guys are so screwed. Like asking us all these questions and we're all like, we don't know like what is happening. But um, it was interesting to say the least um but another another tangent I, I but I kind of also want to go back because you you mentioned a lot about punk rock and you know the idea behind it and this isn't even written down in my notes but I <laughs> have been listening to a lot of podcasts clearly podcasts recently but um one I got into is this I hope I get like sponsored for this but um there's one about conspiracy theories. It's by the Spotify. And they had uh, a whole episode about um, Kurt Cobain. And I like 
I think the conspiracy theories part of like all these are very like interesting, but I'm I'm more like reading or listening to them to learn about the person themselves. And obviously, Kurt Cobain is such an interesting human. And so I, I'm I was wondering like was your interest in sociology at all related to that kind of punk rock mentality of going against the system and things like that? Or was that just a coincidence that, you know, you grew up similar timing? Absolutely. Thank you. That's such an amazing question. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to sort of parse different experiences and how they've impacted you. Uh, I'm reminded of a book by a woman, um, at Berkeley, Judith Butler, who's like really well known as like a gender theorist, um, post-structuralist type. And, and I, I don't read much of her work in that regard, but she wrote this book called how to take account for how to account for yourself or whatever. And she basically just argued that you can never completely understand all the experiences that have impacted you and your trajectory mm-hmm. <laughs> over, over a life. And so you can never actually share your story completely with others, but yes, it's a remarkable book, but yeah, this, this punk rock attitude, this sort of like, um, you know, against the, the system, this sort of, I don't want to work for the man, this very collective mentality, this very like anti-status quo, anti-materialism. It's, it's just, yeah, it, it absolutely shaped my, my life trajectory. It shaped my reason for wanting to become a sociologist. I just really loved creative thinking and creative ways of being and and punk rock really kind of enabled that, you know, like you, you, there was this mentality where you didn't have to follow along and be like everyone else. You could be different. And and there was also this like, you know, very anti-sexist, anti-racist mentality that kind of came around with some of these messages from some of these bands. I, I do, I love all the grunge stuff as well. I love Nirvana. You know, I grew up listening to Nirvana, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, um, you know, like Alice in Chains, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, all of these bands have had this, you know, such an influence on me, but I also grew up listening to bands like Rancid and No Effects and The Circle Jerks, Black Flag, you know, like, and, and definitely, and, and they, they really, I think, um, you know, they, they, they produced a sort of way of looking at the world and a way of finding certain people attractive, right? Their minds, I don't really mean physically necessarily, their minds attractive. And I think that I um, gravitated towards some of these people in community college and, and in, um, and in university, uh, like, you know, just, taking some of these courses, uh, you know, just really ha- has shaped me in so many ways. And I do think that you're correct to ask, like, you know, was that foundation um, from the sort of punk rock attitude and, and punk rock lifestyle that you were living at the time? Yeah, the answer is absolutely, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. So on a completely separate note, uh, I know when we talked previously, you spend some time working um, in a juvenile detention center, specifically in a trauma reduction ward, I believe is what you referred to it as. Yeah. I was wondering if you could, you know, tell me a little bit more about that and just what that experience was like, because not many people, you know, 
get to do that, choose to do that, et cetera. I agree. And it's, and I'll, I'll humbly say that uh, this opportunity was again, you know, very much shaped my trajectory and there, you know, sadly, there are a lot of academics who they move from degree to, de- to degree and, and they don't actually have the opportunity to um, experience life society, culture in myriad ways that are so impactful and, and helpful for developing what C. Wright Mills called the sociological imagination. I graduated with my master's degree from San Diego State and I quickly needed to find a job to pay the bills. And, and I had applied to PhD programs, but you know, by the time you apply and get in and all that stuff, I mean, it's, it, it takes a year essentially. So I was working at a restaurant because I had done so in the past during college and before, and God, I hated being micromanaged and bossed around. Mm -hmm. My boss was such an amazing Irish woman, but I just hated being micromanaged. Oh, I just wanted to strangle myself every time before I put my stupid outfit on and (laughs) went to the restaurant. But I I, um, applied to become a, um, a, a, substitute teacher and I had the credentials and, and so on. And so by the time that came around, I was, I was traveling around daily to different schools, um, uh, high schools, uh, elementary schools, you know, and I even, I even taught kindergarten for like five months, which was such an amazing journey. I, I it's a very leftist program. I, I left at San Diego straight. And when I, I was very influenced and I, I kind of got out of there with this very hippie mentality, like, oh, I don't need to get married. I don't want to have children. I don't even, I'm not even sure if I like children. And then I, I, I worked as a kindergarten teacher for like four or five months. And it turns out I freaking love children. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, so, they're so amazing. But anyway, sorry, the question, uh, I, um, the summer was coming around and, and I had accepted my position at uh, York and I had three and a half months before I was to embark on that new journey. And I, and it was at that time that um, about once a week I was working in um, these very unique uh, schools uh, with undocumented immigrants. I worked at a, I, I taught at a women's shelter before. I, I was with, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds who, you know, most of them literally had children in the class wow. and they, they had been abused and it was just such a, a righteous experience. Um, and, and I was working with, with gang members and, and I applied for this position at this juvenile detention facility because I was, I was attracted to working with this type of youth. And, and uh, I got the job. And, and so, yeah, I, was, I, I found myself five days a week as a teacher uh, inside a, a juvenile detention facility, you know, the, the whole, it's, it's the jail. It's a, it's a, it's a small prison for youth. It has the large walls with barbed wire fence. It has electric detectors, electric, you know, uh, it just, it just, you know, guards with mace. And it was a wild experience. And because of my background, um, teaching with some of these gang members and, and these abused youth, I, um, was asked to, uh, t- you know, be in this very new, very interesting ward that was called the trauma reduction ward. And it was very unique compared with the rest 
of the wards that they would stick the young males in because all of these males had ranked on this UCLA uh, trauma scale. They'd ranked very, very highly, which means that, you know, they'd experienced some really gnarly things like, you know, abuse, fights, um, and even worse, right? Like some of them had seen their best friends get shot and killed. Um, yeah, it was wild. And, and so I, I went in and I was trained quickly by these lovely two women who were the teachers there and, and but they were taking the summer off. And so I became, I became one of them for the summer. And I, I taught their class for um, three months, five days a week, and um, kind of had control over my own curriculum, which was interesting. But I will tell you, this was just the, the craziest experience because these, these youth were just, they, they, they never, what I realized at the end of this, my tenure there is that none of these youth had ever been given the opportunity to live a nice, healthy, relaxed, educated life. They all grew up in, in homes or neighborhoods or just the broader environment, which were unhealthy. You know, like I had a 12 year old who was found shooting heroin with his father. Holy shit. Um, he was robbing people. His father was obviously a drug addict. I had a 19 year old who should have been transferred to an adult prison, but he was on suicide watch and they were afraid that he would try and kill himself in transition. I mean, this, this kid, this man, he was 19. He, he couldn't even be given full length pencils. Like, um, and he had tried to commit suicide, I think at least twice while I was there, never in front of me, but you could hear the alarm go off around the complex. And it was just, so I was dealing with, I was dealing with gang members. I, were, I was dealing with people who, I, I dealt with kids who were affiliated with the Mexican mafia. I'm not recalling the gang specifically right now in San Diego, but there were, there were I had, you know, one, one of my students was a crip from here in Long Beach. Wow. Um, and, and he, I go one day when he first walked in and I knew that everyone was afraid of him and he was kind of the shot caller and he immediately walked in and told one of my students to get the hell up and sit somewhere else. And I, I, I knew for a fact I couldn't have that, you know, going on because I was the shot caller because in this environment, you have to maintain the, the sort of strength. You have to maintain a proper stance amongst the students because as soon as you slip up, they will begin to you know, ridicule you. And, and anyway, I told this, this kid, I said, oh, you know, where are you from, man? Sit down. Your seat's over here. Where are you from? And he said, Long Beach. And I told him, hey, man trying to relate, right? Hey man, I'm from Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And he says, he says, fuck, no, you're not, not from the same railroad tracks that I am. And I'm like, fair enough, <laughs> you know, so sit down. So anyway, you know, yeah, it was just the, it was a wild experience to get to know some of these young males, um, some of whom were, were in and out of that facility. And, and I did my best to, to teach them and to calm them down and to provide a, a relaxed learning environment. But these individuals were, they were traumatized. They were anxious. They were constantly playing, you know, masculinity games with each other, constantly putting on this presentation. And, and it was a very, 
strange um, environment that I learned so much from, and, and it really did shape my attitude and my my um, awareness and my again my my sociological imagination. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I was much better able to, uh, you know, comprehend what people were capable of, of going through, right? If you didn't grow up in an environment that was safe, friendly, warm, and, and loving and nurturing, you know, um, things can go really wrong for people yeah. real quickly. Yeah. So hopefully that was helpful. It's so, I mean, admirable. Like, I can't even imagine the strength it must have taken because you know, on one hand, you do, you know that, you know, these kids are saying things because of how they've grown up, where they've grown up, whom they've grown up with. But at the same time, like that can really get to you. I, I mean, I used to teach at a, um, a summer program for underprivileged kids and none of them had like this amount of experience, but like I remember just going home and crying because a second grader would like make fun of me. And <laughs> I mean, granted at the time I was 14, but still, you know, it's, you gotta maintain that thick skin. And, um, so in the, and it just must've been an absolutely eye opening experience, I guess. So kind of, you know, going back to that whole, it's funny, I, I interviewed someone recently who quoted Steve Jobs saying, like, you can't connect the dots going forward, but you can going back. Um, and, you know, I know now your research is primarily focused in psychedelics. And one thing I th I've learned is that a lot of the reasoning that psychedelics is used for um, treating mental health disorders is because it illuminates parts of your past that maybe you don't remember or have suppressed either conscious, uh, consciously or subconsciously. Um, did, did your working in a trauma reduction facility relate at all to your interest in psychedelics or was it just, again, coincidence or like another interest of yours? No, that, you know, that's a great question. Um, it, 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 you know, it's interesting because it absolutely shaped my trajectory, but but, you know, to be honest, I've had this deep um, and I think even at times unconscious interest in mental health my whole life. Like I told you, I was born hyperactive. I, one of my first memories was standing in um, standing over like toys in kindergarten, struggling to breathe because I was filled with angst. Uh, I suffer from this breathing issue this this uh this this issue with my 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 breath pattern to this day my mother has dealt with depression and anxiety and trauma frankly her entire life basically and it really has been passed off i think to some of my siblings and myself as well and, and she's tried to resolve these issues with um you know the typical the typical uh, treatments that professionals, you know, these days and surely even more so in the 80s and the 90s would, would provide people, you know, which is pharmaceuticals, antidepressants mm -hmm. and so on. So 
you know, growing up in the household that I grew up in, watching my mother suffer from some of these things, um, myself suffering from some of these things, I myself experienced a deep depression um, about six or seven years ago before I moved down to San Diego. It was eight years ago, really. Um, and so, yeah, the mental health has been on my radar for a long, long time. Now, seeing these young males suffer and seeing the results of what are inherently, you know, grotesque living circumstances, lifestyle and cultural circumstances that had, um, you know, propelled them down the pathway that they were going down. This, this absolutely began to, you know, um, it helped me accumulate my, my knowledge base and my experiences around this subject of, of mental health. And so when I went to York, I, I studied broadly. I took courses broadly, race and racism, colonialism, um, you know, sociology of culture. But I, I did begin to study more in depth um, in the sociology of health and illness with an emphasis on mental health. And I, I studied what we call the social determinants of, of health and illness. And I like how you you know, sort of prefaced your, your explanation of, of psychedelics and sort of the revisiting of past experiences, um, because that's exactly what, what psychedelics do. And what's, what's, and we can get into that. Like I can explain how that works and, and what my research questions now look at. But, but the fact is, is that, you know, if you go see a doctor, uh, and you have something wrong with you, they're going to ask you about, you know, what is your body telling you? How are you? Are you ill? Do you have a fever? Are you getting headaches? You know, they, they, you know, more so now they ask you things about your diet, which is cultural, right? They ask you about your relationships, they ask you about your mental health, but this largely, you know, is not the case still to this day. And, and though it's becoming ever more so daily, but this notion of the social determinants of health, is something that I began to look into because these are the social, political, economic, cultural relations that impact the ways that people, you know, grow, operate, uh, experience the world. And they have, you know, massive implications for um, health and well-being and, and, and particularly mental health. And, um, and so, you know, and again, I, I, could, I could go in depth uh, on this notion of social determinants if you like, but I, I began to study these things uh, when I went to York, as well as social theory. These are actually my two, um, you know, so-called areas of strength, which are the sociology of health and illness and um, in sociological theory. And so today, I use these backgrounds, as well as the sociology of culture, to look at psychedelics and people who use psychedelics to deal with distress, what I'll, I'll just call distress broadly, which is anything from addiction to depression or anxiety, trauma, absolutely, obsession and compulsion and so on. Yeah. So I hope that was clear. Definitely. So what does your research involve? Like what you mentioned, you know, you could go into some of the questions you ask, but I guess more broadly, what do you do to conduct this research? You know, who are you, whom are you working with? Not obviously their real names, but like, 
um, you know, is it a variety of demographics or, or the people from a you know variety of places? I guess if you could talk a little bit more about what your research physically looks like, that would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's it is so fascinating. We're living at this moment now where you know, psych, and I don't want to say now, like this began yesterday or even five years ago, like some of these folks have been working on psychedelics uh, after the original sources of funding were cut in the 70s and, um, and after psychedelics were, um, you know, internationally made illegal, um, you know, pe people have been kind of underground uh, scientists and, and now absolutely in public right? And, and in popular culture, we're hearing about this a lot. People have been working on psychedelics since the, the 90s. And, and it really began to take shape in the early 2000s. And, and it's just ramped up exponentially, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing shows on Netflix all over the place, you know, just sort of uh, talking about psychedelics. And there's a lot of utopian um, discourse out there. And, and I assure you that this is not uh, the panacea that um, everyone swears that it is if you read popular culture articles there's a lot of clickbait that operates out there but i'll mm -hmm. tell you this is the most fascinating this is absolutely the most fascinating intervention into the field of mental health in the western world um, for you know 50 years um, my research looks at people who use psychedelics to treat mental distress uh, so again there's a variety of ways that we can use psychedelics. You can use them recreationally, right? You, you take psychedelics and you go to a party, you go to a concert. You can use psychedelics in the middle of the forest with your friends, you know? And, and I've, I've done this a variety of times, uh, you know, not in the recent, recent years, um, but, you know, in the past. And, but psychedelics are, are, are making headlines you know, not for their use recreationally necessarily, although of course that's important and, and, and fascinating, but the reason that psychedelics are, are such a hot topic right now is, is, you know, one, because of this notion of self-transformation that they kind of, you know, help facilitate. But two, and I, I'd say even more importantly, is, is to treat mental distress. And the mm -hmm. reason that, the reason that that's so important, I don't think you hear enough people talking about this, but the reason that it's so important is because we're not able to treat mental distress properly in the West. We do not have a great grip on it. We are not effective. Um, we have had problems and we have had corruption with the pharmaceutical industries, uh, paving the way for uh, psychiatrists to even learn about distress and, and, you know, promulgate this notion of the biomedical model, which situates the theory of mental distress in individuals' brains. Again, they pay zero attention to the social determinants of health and illness, of mental health. And so the reason, like I said, that psychedelics are, are such a fascinating topic right now, you know, elsewhere, you know, in popular culture, but for me, is because largely we have been you know, ineffective at, at treating broad forms of mental distress in a, in a helpful, predictable fashion. I mean, people take pharmaceuticals or they utilize talk therapy 
And the and and, and by the way, I I, I want to be clear: those avenues of treatment are are vastly important for a lot of people. Yeah. But for but for far too many people, they are not helpful. They merely resolve one problem by creating another. These so-called side effects that many antidepressants have, antipsychotics. This is why you've seen suicide rates going up. This is why you've seen um, opioid crises. This is why you've seen just distress broadly. The numbers continue to rise. And I'm not even talking about over the last year with the pandemic. I'm talking about before that. Um, we have a, a, a drastic issue in the ways that we um, you know, think that we understand distress and that we treat distress. And so the reason that psychedelics are so fascinating is because they're offering a new uh, arena for treating distress. And so I interview people who have, there's two aspects of my research. One is looking at, well, so I guess both of them look at people who have suffered from distress for years, in, in literally decades, mm-hmm. and have tried all sorts of different styles of treatment, including you know all the pharmaceuticals you can imagine, uh, talk therapy, forms of counseling, behavioral psychology, um, and, and, and have not, found efficacy from these treatments and who then some of them who are you know are 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 picking up psychedelics as a last resort i mean that literally some people who are are suffering from such pain that they are are trying psychedelics you know as a last ditch effort i look at people who are are using psychedelics to treat these these really just rampant long lasting um, forms of distress. And I do that in two ways. One, I, I look at people who are using psychedelics kind of on their own or with what they call a trip sitter, which is, you know, as, as some of your audience is likely aware, uh, people who, um, who uh, you know, have a psychedelic experience, have people who are sober and who can drive if need be, um, sit with them on the couch and let them know that the, their world is not collapsing or the house is on fire if, if, yeah. they, if people have a bad it's like a bad trip yeah yeah but um, the other uh, population I look at are people who, who um, have the means to travel abroad in fact they, they go to Jamaica and they have a um, week-long uh, mushroom retreat experience they go to a very lovely small resort uh, on the beach and they stay there for a week and they engage in um, psilocybin mushrooms three times with nurses available and, and, and you know, anywhere from 10 to maybe 14 or 16 other people who go at the same time for the same retreat. And they kind of use psychedelics in this collective environment together. And it's just been such a fascinating experience to hear these stories and to hear of, you know, the efficacy that people receive from these journeys and, and the introspection, the integration circles and the mindfulness. All of this is part and parcel to the, the psychedelic retreat that many of my participants, my research participants are engaging in, um, 
it's just, it's just been so wonderful. And and yeah, and I I can get deeper into that, but that's kind of what my research looks at is, is the experiences of people personally, culturally, psychologically, um, the experiences that people go through in, in terms of their journey of of healing distress, that, that typical means and, and treatments have not resolved. Yeah. I mean, that's so fascinating too. Like, I I'm particularly intrigued by the you know the group the <laughs> no no pun intended the group trips um to Jamaica because there is a lot of um you know science behind the fact that whether it be group therapy um for eating disorders or um addiction is like um what's the word a lot more effective than just one on one because you know, you have that communal aspect. So, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine the discussions they that must occur between, you know, 14, let's say, like, m- middle-aged men and women. <laughs> middle-aged, yes, yes. Which, it's just got to be so interesting, who are, you know, obviously, if they can afford to do that kind of trip to trip um probably more or less well off um I, it's got to be fascinating to you know have those types of shared experiences and then being able to communicate those with people who are more or less in your same demographic this notion of uh middle age i think is is very fascinating and important <clears throat> what i didn't want to do is um, you know, study people who use psychedelics recreationally. Let me be clear. I am a leftist. I am a hippie type. Uh, I love all of the music by Led Zeppelin and Jefferson Airplane. And I mean, we could talk about this subject for hours. I'm very interested in the 60s. I'm currently writing a book chapter on surfing and psychedelics and the counterculture in the 1950s through the 1970s. It's just, I I love this lifestyle and this culture, but I'm not at this moment personally or academically interested in in hearing about how high people got. And that's why I'm only interviewing people who are 30 and above. So this notion of middle age is is so profound. And it also gives people, you know, um, the opportunity to, to, uh, you know, tell me about their life circumstances and tell me about what it's like to suffer for 30 years. Like, can you imagine what that must be like to be able to tell someone I've been depressed on and off for 30 years and all of these psychiatrists in white lab coats, they offer me these pills and they never have worked for me, right? Maybe they've dulled my senses. Maybe they've enabled me to forget who the hell I am or was, but they've never actually worked. I'm talking with people who are 60 years old, who are 45 years old, who are 50 and who have suffered for, you know, literally some of them decades. We're talking about, and by the way, you know, trigger warning, right? Like I interview people who, I interview women who have uh, undergone sexual abuse, molestation, rape. Um, I've interviewed men who 
have just had harrowing experiences from childhood that they've never resolved. Uh, these people have these heartbreaking stories and these, these stressful life circumstances that remain with them and operate on their bodies and minds daily for, for decades and who have had suicidal ideations. Um, it's just like most of my participants have cried to me. It's just such a, it's just such a remarkable journey. This whole project has been, and I'm, I'm really only in the analysis phase for half of my participants now. And I'll be speaking about these findings and these analyses, um, at, at conferences, at sociological conferences, this, this coming summer, which is just going to be fascinating because a lot of people aren't doing this kind of work in sociology, but, but yeah, you know, like you said, going from feeling so left out from so depressed from thinking about just ending your life to making this, this last decision to try this, you know, what is illegal in the vast majority of the Western world, um, these the substances that have had such baggage, such stigmatization outside of the last couple of years. I mean, it's, it's a really remarkable journey that these people go through. And, and to touch on your, your notion of, of these group trips, no, no pun intended, right? But because they go, they, they go as strangers. These yeah. people, 10 of them, 12 of them, they, they end up all at a Jamaican airport as strangers suffering. And they come into the hands, you know, figuratively of these amazing, um, these amazing uh, facilitators, nurses at, at this, um, this retreat in Jamaica. And they meet other people who are also suffering like-minded, experientially similar people. And they, they really, the facilitators and the nurses, they create this environment of, of peace and positivity and happiness. And they enable these people to reflect and reconstruct their lives with the use of, of psilocybin mushrooms and these intense introspective journeys that are enabled through these states of consciousness and to, to experience that as an individual is one thing, but to experience that collectively is another. And I think that this is, this is the, the way that this is what the future holds for, for psychedelic healing is, is this collective process. Not only is it financially much, much more feasible to have, facilitators, nurses, if not physicians on hand, you know, to do that for one person for eight hours is expensive, but yeah. to do that for 10 people and to have the collective communal loving environment, um, you know, it's, it's much more financially feasible. And I think that this is going to be the way that healthcare models adopt uh, in, in the near future. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing it unfold now as we speak, but but this is the next large scale, profound intervention into mental health care that we're, we're witnessing unfold as we speak. And, um, and the collective environment with the 
the sharing of experiences, the, the meditation sessions, the sharing of stories before and after, the, the real deep delving into one's personal experience. And then to know that you're not alone in that process, to know that you are not alone, but you are sitting in a circle with 12 other people, all of whom who have undergone some harmful shit that they still suffer. It's just the most remarkable experience. And I am so happy to be undergoing this research. And I'm just so stoked like daily that I've ended up here on this pathway as a PhD candidate, like looking into this research that is so important and studying it from a sociological and a social psychological standpoint, which not a lot of people are doing. I am just so stoked. So anyway, I, I talk a lot and that was a tangent, but thank you for asking. No, it's, I mean, it's so fascinating. And I think as, you know, as we talked about in our call a while back, like the reason I even became interested in this field or this new approach to, you know, healing distress um, was because I heard Tim Ferriss talk about his experience and like, Oh my gosh. And for anyone listening, I mean, he, Tim Ferriss is a very well-known podcaster who um, opened up about his experience using, I believe it was psilocybin mushrooms, which then opened up a memory of his from his childhood of being molested, which is incredibly sad and just for uh, in so many ways. But I think what that showed me and what's shown him and um, now he works with some incredible therapists who focus on internal family systems, which is something I'm also going to try to have an episode on, but is that like people have, you know, some people, as you mentioned, you know, are going on 30, 40, 50 years of uh, like on depression or holding on to trauma that they know they have. But I think there's also another group of people who are holding on to trauma that they didn't even know they had, or they, they may be depressed, but they don't know why. And then having that experience that illuminates something that our bodies like neurologically to because of self-preservation hide from our conscious memory to open that up and be like, it's like, I can't even imagine how, I mean, obviously traumatic and awful it is initially, but then ultimately it's got to be so healing to know, wow, this is why I've been so depressed. Like this is why I've not been able to sleep for 30 years. And then to do that also with a community that can relate must be just like, I don't even have words. And for you, like to be able to listen to these stories and, you know, hear people who were on like the verge of just giving up and have like a, basically a second chance of, of like on life has cheesy as that sounds. It must be just unreal. A lot of people suffer and they don't know why. And you, you've, you just really articulated this beautifully. Um, the fact is, is that things take place and uh, 
And, and sometimes our memories uh, do very well to block us from that experience, right? But, but the body holds on to these experiences. And, and that's why, you know, people with trauma can be triggered walking into a room, seeing a car crash, seeing a particularly colored couch and they don't know what's bothering them. Mm -hmm. Smells is a big thing. There's this book <clears throat> which has been widely praised but widely criticized on the other side of the spectrum. I think it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, I've heard of it. I think Tim Ferriss talks about it. And despite the fact that, you know, maybe some people are criticizing it or not, like th th this, this idea is, is sound, it is pertinent, right? This, this notion that your body holds on to things that you experience. And I mean, I'll just give you an example. I spoke with one of my research participants who had suffered for, you know, years, decades, and she did the psychotherapy. She took psychopharmacological drugs, um, you know, prescribed to her by a medical doctor. Uh, no one could get to the bottom of what she was suffering from. But a couple of different psychotherapists told her, you know, it sounds like you had some really intense experiences when you were young, that your body, that your, your body may be holding on to, but that your mind is not. And she never could get to the bottom of what was actually going on. She went to a mushroom retreat and took a high dose of mushrooms and she revisited this harrowing experience of, of rape that she went through as a child. And uh, I, I'm not going to go into any more details than that. But the fact is, is that this is just one of many examples that I you know, could bring to the table that my research is showing, um, really, it really paints this picture of the fact that we're not always consciously aware of what we've undergone and that what may be impacting us at this very moment or any specific moments throughout our lives but that we carry along with us. The psychedelic state of consciousness, in the, and I'm, I'm forgetting the term at the moment, but, the, you know, mushrooms, for example, enable people to retrieve memories that have been repressed or that are unconscious. And when people are in this state of consciousness and they revisit these traumatic experiences through this, this very kind, introspective, mindful state, what they're doing is reassociating their experience with that history, with that memory in a different light. They, re they recategorize it in their minds and they revisit it. They recategorize it. They realize that it's not the, uh, you know, sort of scariest, most impactful, most painful recollection that they could possibly have. And they are able to, you know, reinvent their uh, relationship to that, that profound experience that they went through. So the psychedelic state of consciousness enables people to revisit these moments and, and reassociate them. And it enables them to live their lives with that experience, making better decisions, making better, more uh, attractive, healthier uh, decisions and lifestyle and, and psychological and behavioral repertoires, all of that. And that's why people, and you've heard this before, 
talking about Tim Ferriss's episode, which was one of the most profound podcasts I've ever listened to in my entire life. And I yeah. highly recommend it. But that's why you'll hear people like Tim Ferriss say that a, a true psychedelic experience under the proper set and setting is like undergoing 10 years of psychotherapy in eight hours. Yeah. And I, I think that what, what my research subjects have offered have revealed, have shared with me, really, um, it really suggests that that is the case. Definitely. Hey guys, me super quick. I just wanted to talk about an incredible business that my friend just started called Grief and Groundwork. Grief and Groundwork is a depression, anxiety, grief coaching program. Um, Madison, who helped create my website, fun fact, uses her degree in psychology and 12 years as a social worker as well as her own grief and mental health journey to coach others. Um, to learn more about it, you can follow her on Instagram at grief and groundwork, all one word, or visit her website at madisonshea.com. So that's Madison, M-A-D-I-S-O-N-S-H-E-A.com. Um, and then from there, you can fill out an application for a free video conf- consultation um, to begin that work to overcome that grief. So, she works with people all over the country um, and basically her mission is like we live in a society that teaches us to numb and avoid our feelings. So through Grief and Groundwork, Madison walks her clients along in exploring, nurturing, and healing the wounds causing uncomfortable symptoms. Again, Grief and Groundwork on Instagram and madisonshea.com. Um, yeah, and let me know what you think. Anyways, back to the episode. So before wrapping up, I want to ask you a few questions that I always end my episodes with. The first being, do you believe everything happens for a reason? Oh, you know, that kind of, to me, I, I think that if, if you can believe that, it's probably psychologically very helpful. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know if I believe that because that entails kind of like a slippery slope of belief systems that come from a you know religious spiritual yeah, foundation but um i like the question and I, I think that if you can enable yourself to to situate it philosophically like that then you might live a, a happier life i i do think that you know if i were to be critical of of the academy and of uh, leftist culture right now we're going through a moment where people um are to it's understood that people students and so on are to be saved from any sort of um you know negative impact any psychologically taxing experience or or or, and i'm not talking about chronic stress i'm talking about acute you know this notion of safe spaces and trigger warnings i think that if we understand a slight pushback from life that's where growth comes from. That's mm-hmm. where learning comes from. And so understanding that everything happens for a reason puts you in the mindset um, that is growth oriented, right? Okay, I got a flat tire. Does this mean that life itself sucks? Or maybe I can grow. Maybe I realize I need to be more patient. Maybe I realize I need to change my tires more often. Yeah. I don't know, but there's a lesson to be learned. And I think that holding that life philosophy, um, which I think is inherently... Um, you know, optimistic. I think that that can be helpful. <laughs> I agree. I, I like thinking it, of it in 
terms of there is a reason that can be found in everything that happens, like kind of s reframing the narrative so that it's not like, as you said, you know, like, oh, well, that was fate, but more so the finding a silver lining because there's a lot of things that should not have happened <laughs> um, for any reason. But right. Anyway, my next question is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Oh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that I think that I've had a variety over the years and they come and go with my mindset at any given uh, sort of moment in life. I don't have any off the top of my head, though, you know, I imagined if I wasn't pressured to come up with one, moment, <laughs> like I, I probably were to give you one, but no, nothing is coming to mind. I think that part and parcel to my hyperactivity means that I kind of float around often between different sort of subjects or, or cultural, um, cultural ideals that I um, may enjoy at any particular moment. I, I don't have anything to offer. I'm sorry. That's a bummer. <laughs> it's okay. If anything comes to mind, I'll add it in the show notes. Um, what do you love most about yourself? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I don't sleep well. I'll tell you that much. Um, Jeez, I don't know. I think that we all go through moments where we think we're, you know, great, followed by moments where maybe we think that we're, you know, assholes. Um, what do I most enjoy about myself? I, I, you know, I guess I would, I would say, and, and I, I, you know, this is important. I, you've enabled me to reflect on something that I find so beneficial. I, as I said, I was kind of born hyperactive and, and um, I had these funky breathing patterns and I don't always sleep well. And, and I, again, this, this came to me as a matter of my own physiology before we lived in this sort of, you know, socially hyperactive culture that we exist in now. And, and, I, and, you know, and it got me in a lot of trouble growing up and I wasn't able to sit still. I mean, I'm not sitting still now. Um, and, but what I've realized is that if you can find ways to resolve that hyperactivity and to calm down, you can utilize your hyperactivity as a superpower. And I have a lot of anxious students. I have a lot of nervous students. And um, I tell them that, you know, you can, some people have a very difficult time getting up for an occasion, ramping up their heart rate, ramping up their, their sort of cognition, um, you know, stepping up to the plate when, when uh, need be. A lot of people find it difficult. And hyperactivity is kind of, you know, your entire life is situated near that sort of threshold. And it can be very damaging at times. But if you can learn to calm down, if you can learn to eat a proper diet, uh, sleep better, exercise, treat your body and mind well, practice meditation or mindfulness, if you can calm yourself down, you can utilize your hyperactivity um, you know, in a very, very beneficial way to where it's actually operating as a superpower. The, the, the funny part about your question is that I don't really attribute much to anything. 
that I've done or chosen as an individual, free will, self-conscious human being. I don't think that way. I've been given opportunities. I've stumbled across good luck. I've been able to pursue goals through social, cultural, political relations that have offered me these, these awesome opportunities. And, and I don't really think much about individual decisions, life choices, circumstances. I don't really attribute much to my own free will. So anything that I'm capable of is beyond me. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I just, I, I guess I would say that for myself, um, I'm happy to have given, I've been, I'm happy to have been given the tools to calm myself down and share that, those tools with my students um, because I think it's very impactful. But again, I didn't create those tools. I'm just using them. So it's not about me. <laughs> well, in some ways, but I'll take it. <laughs> Sorry, and, that was so long-winded. It's okay. It leads you to the next question, which is how do you find solace in the city? So how do you find that way to calm yourself down and you know utilize those uh, or make the most of those um, hyperactive tendencies? So oh, beautiful last question. I'm not certain that it's the last, but I imagine it, it is. is. <laughs> yeah, because of uh, its uh, relationship with, uh, your lovely podcast. Um, wow. Yeah. Living in a big city like Toronto, which I have for the last four and a half years and which I will be living again in for a year. Um, it, it can be tough. It can be tough. The city has such beautiful people, culture, opportunities, but it operates at such a, a fast pace. It is, you know, it is difficult sometimes horns honking, people riding the subway, touching you and sneezing on you. And it is just wild. You're preaching to the choir. I was in New York. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. So I, I, I exercise every single day. Um, and when we're not in a pandemic, I lift weights, run, stretch. And I literally sit in a steam room or a sauna seven days a week. Wow. And when I get out from that steam room and that, and I take a cold shower, that's how I feel better. That in, in meditation and mindfulness. I, I really like Sam Harris. I use Sam Harris's meditation app and his podcast, Making Sense. His meditation app is uh, waking up just like one of his books. And I, I, I meditate and I use mindfulness as best I can. And I, I exercise, I lift weights, I, I, I do hot and cold therapy. This is how I engage in, in solace in the city. Um, you know, and, and it's not always easy, but Hey, you know, you live in the big city, you got to enjoy what big cities have to offer, which is people, culture, lifestyle, and the rapid pace that it can bring. So yeah, that's a great question. Thank you very much. Of course. Well, Jarrett, thank you so much for just shedding light on everything you're doing you're such an interesting person I feel like I learned so much just from speaking to you twice where can everyone like learn more about what you're doing support you in any way um, support organizations that you're passionate about just plug anything 
you know, thank you so much for having me. It's been remarkable. I love hearing from you and, and learning about you and your podcast as well and, and your own unique experiences, which are, you know, fascinating. Um, I don't yet have a personal website, but I will be uh, creating one shortly. Uh, but, you know, I've been playing the Twitter game, talking about mindfulness and solace. I don't recommend Twitter for that, and I, I don't take it seriously. But, you know, I, I do... Um, try and engage in healthy uh, as opposed to unhealthy conversations on Twitter at times. So you can find me on Twitter, uh, Jarrett Rose. I think it's Jarrett R um, at Twitter. I'm not certain, but it's not difficult to find me. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm, I hope to be making a lot of noise, uh, both in the academic and, and public spheres um, over the summer and, and, uh, and, and, you know, well, geez, for the rest of my career on the topic of culture, psychedelics, um, mental health, and, and just sociology broadly. So again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, I really love having conversations of these sorts. So if any of your listeners have any questions or they just want to reach out, um, I'd love to hear from you. So please do so uh, on, on Twitter. Yeah, I appreciate it. So thank you, Zoe. It's been remarkable. Amazing. Well, thank you again. And bye, everyone. Thank you.